The following recording may contain explicit language. I can't get more explicit than may. Let's just say it may. It's Thursday, April 2nd, 2020. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Jobless claims six and two-thirds millions today. My God. Remember last week when the claims were at almost 3.3 million and Trump's response was, well, it could have been six or seven. Now it is. As of this recording, Trump has not yet offered the explanation. Well, it could have been eight or nine, but we're still monitoring. Of course, with the good weather, the job claims should come down by April. Oh, wait, it is April. And yesterday was April Fool's Day. In my house, we had a great prank organized by Milo, the 12-year-old. He convinced my girlfriend, Michelle, that it was her birthday. She got calls from friends. She got cards. She got a candle. And actually, and this was the hard one to pull off, a Facebook notification that it was her birthday. It worked so well that Michelle broke down into tears, wondering if she had gone insane. High five, Milo. High five. The president, on the other hand, took foolishness and foppery in another direction yesterday. He, like Michelle and Milo, were also focused on Facebook. The general category of Facebook, remember, is called... It's social media. It gets out. I have, you know, hundreds of millions of people, number one on Facebook. Did you know I was number one on Facebook? And I just found out I'm number one on Facebook. I thought that was very nice. Now, Trump knew that term, social media, because very, very important term. You don't forget a vital term in a very important time. But when it comes to, say, another term, like developing herd immunity, a means of combating not the scourge of anonymity or the scourge, as Donald Trump says, but actually the scourge of the virus, which can be fought with herd immunity, here's what Donald Trump said. We did the right thing. We had no choice. We did the right thing. Other countries tried to use the herd or the herd mentality. It's just... So perhaps you heard me say that I have seen every minute of every press briefing. Well, since they've shifted to the evening, it becomes harder and harder. And my schedule is that I check in on the transcript the next day. And I got to say, last night's was not a good one. Uh, tonight's was information about small business loans little Jared Kushner, and then the normal Trump freelancing governor should have prepared themselves better. But I still feel the responsibility to bring it all to you. So what I did was I read through the transcript, sped read through the transcript, and asked the producers to put together this montage of the most important moments of the press conference. First, the president was joined by General Milley. Thank you, Secretary, for those... Uh uh, words and thank you, Mr. President, for your leadership. And I want to. And Attorney General Barr. Thank you, Mr. President. Thanks for your uh, decisive leadership as we confront this unprecedented uh, challenge uh, posed by Corona. And Robert O'Brien, the National Security Advisor. Thank you, General. Thank you, Mr. President. Uh, today's action is another example of the bold leadership of President Trump and his commitment to protecting the homeland. You can hear there what qualified all of those men to hold those positions. Then there was talk of drug busts, not chloroquine, the fun drugs. The president got into the specifics of the economic stimulus plan. And as you know, phase three was terrific, and phase four, what passed in Congress, and phase four, if that happens, will be great. I already... And then he returned to his pet policy of the wall, 
which he said was working pretty much perfectly as walls, as you know, are essentially an undefeatable piece of technology. Uh, Any place where you have that wall other than walking around it on the edges, it's stopping everybody cold. Then the president told us about the unprecedented actions his administration was taking to combat the unprecedented crisis we're in. I mean, nobody could have seen it coming. I see things that nobody would believe. Nobody's seen anything like it. That's how good. Again, nobody could have known a thing like this could happen. Something that nobody's ever seen before. Nobody's ever seen anything like this where nobody's gotten to it. Nobody's talked about it at all. Because nobody's ever asked him to do this. Nobody else knew it either. Nobody's ever seen anything like this. I mean, nobody can get near it. And nobody can even get near that. Ah, nobody does it better. On the show today... I spiel about the least sympathetic two figures during this pandemic. They're Republicans. They're in the federal government. They might not be who you are thinking of, but I lightly defend them, warning you, oh Lord. But first, Christian nationalism is the subject of Kristen Stewart's new book, Power Worshippers. It chronicles how a movement wrapped in Christianity but motivated by power has taken hold and come to shape the Republican Party, and especially big, important parts of this administration. Now, with so many involved in the fight against coronavirus also directly or ancillarily involved with the Christian nationalist movement, we thought it wise to have her on to discuss how Christian nationalism works and how it's working or thwarting the efforts to fight coronavirus up next. Hi, this is Rachel Yucatel, and I'm here to invite you to listen to my podcast, Misunderstood with Rachel Yucatel. This podcast delves into the lives of those who have been reduced to a single headline. Each episode will take a closer look at the stories of those who are on a mission to change their narrative. Join me as we uncover the truth behind the misconceptions, shed light on the stories of those who have perhaps been wrongfully portrayed, explore the complexities of the human experience, and celebrate the power of second chances. Who doesn't love a good comeback story? The coronavirus pandemic is real wrath of God type stuff, isn't it? Well, there were some people who were waiting for this, who were ready for this, and who quite scarily have been tasked with the response. Catherine Stewart is the author of a new book about the rise of the religious right in politics and society. It is called The Power Worshippers, Inside the Dangerous Rise of Religious Nationalism. And even though the book went to press before, I think, the first cases in Wuhan were even detected, it is exactly about our moment right now. Hello, Catherine. Thanks for joining me. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. So having read the book, it's about how our society and the religious right, there is an interplay between them. But since society has been basically reduced down to this one question, how will we fight the coronavirus? That question is extremely relevant to what you've been looking at because people on the right are powering the response for good and ill. So what's it been, good or ill? It's a complex question. And I think Christian nationalism, which is what we're dealing with here, is not a religion. Many evangelicals are doing very positive things. Many religious people are doing a lot of positive things in this situation with the coronavirus. But Christian nationalism is not a religion. It's a political ideology that cloaks itself in religious rhetoric. And it's a movement that put Trump in power. So there are a number of ways in which the movement bears some responsibility for the current incompetent in our national response. 
First and foremost, the movement promotes an anti-science culture that rejects the evidence of science, rejects expertise, and rejects critical thinking. And that has obviously contributed to our inability collectively to address this crisis in an evidence-based fashion. Misinformation is rife in those hyper-conservative and highly politicized religious communities that we're all in for Trump. And remember, this is, you know, the piece I wrote about for the Times a few days ago is not about, you know, as some people have asserted evangelicals and coronavirus. Many evangelicals are doing positive things. This is really about this political movement that cloaks itself in religious rhetoric and, and how it's inhibiting the administration's response. I think another really important point, and it's becoming uh, incredibly obvious right now is that we have in our society a poorly developed collective infrastructure, and that's a consequence of decades of right-wing economic policy. Remember, its representatives are constantly bashing government, demonizing it. Some are even saying, you know, they call food stamps unbiblical and things like that. <clears throat> so that really makes it hard to have a a really strong, solid collective response. So before I zoom out, let's talk about who in the administration is part of this movement. Leading the response is Mike Pence. I would certainly put him as part of the Christian nationalist movement. Before him, leading the response from the administration was Alex Azar of the United States of the Health and Human Services Department. He's in it. The director of the CDC, Robert Redfeld, is an anti-abortion, pretty much anti-premarital sex advocate, more than advocate. It's part of his life's work. And he does have credentials and is a doctor and has worked to combat AIDS, but he's done so on a, a message of chastity and celibacy. Ben Carson, who's you know up there, at least during the press conferences, who else can we put in this category? Well, it's interesting. A lot of the folks who are lending support to this movement may represent what they do as, you know, just coming from a religious standpoint, but we can see it correctly as a form of partisan political agitation. I'm thinking about Alex Azar, who is Secretary of the Department of Health and Human Services, as his, he's had a, look, in January and February, he should have been out there like upscaling hospitals, trying to source personal protective equipment and equipment to treat the sick. But, you know, his focus, it seems, in, in his department has been to, you know, literally rebrand his department of the so-called Department of Life. Uh, he also established a division of conscious and re religious freedom that's aim is to allow healthcare providers to deny legal and medically indicated health services to certain patients as a matter of religious conscience. So a lot of the folks uh, who are lending support to this movement might not call themselves Christian nationalists per se, but what they're actively doing is working to promote this idea that the foundation of legitimate government in the United States is bound up with a reactionary understanding with a particular religion and establishing a kind of hierarchy of rights. So if you look at Azar and Carson, they're both cabinet sponsors of this organization called Capital Ministries. It's a Bible study group targeting political leaders at the highest echelons of, of power. It's led by a guy named Ralph Drollinger, who advocates an incredibly wide range of policy positions, economic policy, foreign policy, and domestic policy. And so he's these weekly Bible study in the White House and also weekly Bible studies for members of Congress and House of Representatives. So he's arguably one of the most, or if not the most, politically influential pastors in America. 
his, his ideology, I would call it incredibly extreme. So, you know, if you look at his webpage, he lists White House cabinet sponsors. You've got Pence, Pompeo, Alexander Acosta, Azar, Bridenstine, Ben Carson, Betsy DeVos, Sonny Perdue. A dozen current and former members of Trump's cabinet are on this webpage. So those are a lot of really powerful people. It's also important to note that, you know, a lot of people characterize this movement as evangelical, but that's not right. The movement includes many evangelicals, but it excludes many evangelicals too. Let's remember there's a large group of evangelicals who reject the politics of conquest and division that this movement represents. And also the movement includes representatives of a variety of both Protestant and non-Protestant religion. So what seems to unite the movement is not necessarily any theological ideas, but a kind of common political vision. I wonder if another way that Christian nationalism uh, affects the composition of our government is that Trump just basically burned bridges with much of the, not only the nonpartisan, but even much of the Republican establishment. So there were many people who could serve in these positions who were not loyal to Trump, so he would never tap, who themselves took themselves out of the running. You know, we could go through the taxonomy of Republicans, and he lost a lot of the neocons, and he lost a lot of the kind of uh, free marketers. And what was left, maybe the largest strain of people who could serve in these positions were, there were, there were very few from Trump world itself, you know, Steve Bannon acolytes or Jason Miller, people who were really tertiarily involved in Republicanism. The main strain of quote unquote qualified people who could serve in these positions were exactly from the movement you document. And that's why the cabinet is so staffed with them. They were the only ones who created a justification, you know, based on the biblical King Cyrus or whatever, for Trump being president. And that's why we're now being ruled by them. Yeah, I I think we have to remember that Trump is in office precisely because of this movement. He wouldn't be there if they hadn't put their um, efforts behind him and tried to get him elected. Let's remember, the movement is really, I wouldn't say it's leaderless, but it's kind of centralist. It consists of a variety of for-profit, non-profit organizations, right-wing policy groups, a huge, like, very well-run and and smart data initiatives, legal advocacy organizations. You know, there are a lot of leaders I've been going, you know, for the past 10 years and researching my book to all these strategy meetings and gatherings and, you know, road to majority conferences and uh, value voters summits and things like that. And A lot of the movement leaders, Trump may not have necessarily been their first choice from the beginning, but he made a deal with them. There was a point, actually, where he held up a list of judges and he said, I'm going to choose judges from this list and all of them are pro-life. Now, of course, pro-life meaning anti-abortion, but also pro-life is a kind of stand-in for a much broader agenda in the movement. You know, pro-life, but they were also probably anti-big government, anti-workers' rights, and that kind of thing. So he signaled to them that this was, you know, where he was going to go. And that combined with his choice of Mike Pence as VP, these were key moments when the religious right really decided to put all of their force behind him, their data initiatives. I remember Ralph Reed, who's the head of one of these leading right-wing policy groups. And, you know, we also have to remember that a lot of this organization runs through these right-wing 
churches, I mean, leaders of the movement have figured out that pastors drive votes. And so they've made this huge effort to draw conservative leaning pastors into these networks and then communicate to them the issues that they need to communicate to their congregations in order to get out the vote for the hyper-conservative political candidates that the movement favors. So the cabinet sponsors, the cabinet sponsors, these members of the cabinet who are listed as cabinet sponsors of capital ministries, beyond what you've documented their motivations to be, the methods that Christian nationalists use, how they're both used and used by the Christian nationalist movements, in what ways specifically are their predilections having an impact, do you think, on how we're fighting this virus from a federal government level? Well, let's just look at, you know, the theology or supposed theology. It's really kind of a political theory behind what Drollinger is teaching. He promotes the idea that social welfare programs have no basis in scripture. He, you know, is against progressive income taxes. He doesn't think that, you know, government should be in charge of providing direct aid to the poor, for instance. He's completely allied, again, with that sort of pro-libertarian, hyper-conservative economic wing of the Republican Party. He believes that God believes in deregulation and laborers in the workforce should so-called, you know, submit to their bosses. And the, the, ten, the Ten Commandments would maybe be a uh, standing contrast to that uh, belief, but okay, continue. Again, <laughs> you're right. It actually is the opposite interpretation of the Christian religion that perhaps most American Christians understand it. But this is a, one of the reasons for the fact that they promote this idea that all the solutions should come from the private sector. And that's really hard when you need a public health response to a pandemic. And ordinarily, the consequences of this type of ideology don't sort of reveal themselves for some time. You see the consequences a bit down the road. But in the case of a global pandemic that's killing people, unfortunately, consequences are, are too stark to ignore. While it's true that, that Donald Trump needed this cadre to be elected, he had a broad coalition, and some of them were either racist or r- racist apologists. How does religious nationalism intersect with racism? I mean, I think that's a really great question. Thanks for asking it. The Christian nationalist movement is often criticized as a white movement. And I think for a lot of the people in the white people in the rank and file, it is an implicitly white movement. It's for them a part of a vision that involves recovering a nation that was once supposedly Christian and white. So it's a form of identity politics and that it, it ties the idea of America to specific religious and cultural identities. But you know, leaders of the movement understand that the electoral feature of the movement isn't ethnically homogenous. And in recent years, they really have made an effort to include some conservative Latino and Black pastors and other figures. But, you know, there is an irony here that the they are being enlisted to fight the culture wars that drive support for a political party that's made race-based voter suppression and gerrymandering a strategic imperative. And I also think that movement leaders tend to paper over the ways in which hyper-conservative religion and racism can reinforce one another. The movement promotes this idea of sort of insider or outsider, pure and impure. And in the past, this kind of 
dynamic has been used to cast people of color as impure and not the so-called true Americans. The movement now seems to have kind of shifted some of those lines. Now they're blaming sort of quote-unquote secularists for out there ransacking everything that's holy and good, and people who are sort of Democrats for sure. One of the reasons that Trump won is that he does also appeal to the racism of some, some number of his followers. Catherine Stewart is the author of The Power Worshippers Inside the Dangerous Rise of Religious Nationalism. Also check out her New York Times op-ed of a few days ago, The Religious Rights Hostility to Science is Crippling Our Coronavirus Response. Thank you so much, Catherine. Thanks so much for having me. And now the spiel. We've been told to be nicer than usual in these times, to forgive others, to give people a break. So does that apply to this nice lady who, like the rest of us, is just trying to get through a pandemic? I've had some great conversations today, and those personal touches where you hear someone's dog in the background barking or their kid runs into the room, I think these are great moments that remind us we're all humans in this together, working hard to keep each other safe, strong, and healthy. Well, the speaker has also sold millions of dollars worth of stock in the days before the public as a whole realized the depths of our travails. She is Georgia Senator Kelly Loeffler. And along with Senate Intelligence Committee Chairman Richard Burr, she was briefed by CDC experts in late January. And by February, or in Loeffler's case, right after the briefing, they were all sell, 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 while adopting a public stance of, We're handling this well, well, well. So maybe some ire, some outrage, some real anger is warranted. And you know, maybe it is. But there's also a mob mentality to the criticism. And as much as it pains me to say, I really do not think that anger at Loeffler and Burr for insider trading has been totally fair. Yes, I know you're going to hate me for saying so. But we do need villains in these times. And these two have not helped us as public servants. They haven't actually served the public and they have helped themselves to some extent. So you add it all up and you get what seems like the case of senators trading on information the public didn't have while downplaying the situation publicly. Seems clear cut, right? Seems unethical, right? But I think having examined both parts both clauses of the sentence of senators trading on insider information the public didn't have and downplaying the situation publicly, I think there's mitigating circumstances. Okay, Richard Burr, according to David Leonhardt of the New York Times, quote, went so far as to co-write an article for foxnews.com bragging about the country's readiness. Vanity Fair describes that op-ed this way. Senate Intelligence Chairman Richard Burr, for instance, wrote in a Fox News op-ed February 7th with Senator Lamar Alexander that Americans shouldn't worry about the coronavirus because thanks to the Senate Trump administration, the United States today is better prepared than ever before. Okay, well that part, the United States being prepared better than ever before, that sentence was in the op-ed. But here's the first sentence of it. Americans are rightfully concerned about the coronavirus. There are 12 confirmed cases of this new infectious disease in the United States. And the ability of the virus to rapidly spread in China, where it has infected more than 24,300 people and left 491 dead, is alarming. All right. The op-ed written by Burr, the author of the Pandemic All Hazards Preparedness Act, praised, as luck would have it, the value of the Pandemic All Hazards Preparedness Act. In Fighting Corona, this article published on March 7th, 
pretty much offered the kind of vague reassurances that were echoed throughout all levels of government, including the CDC, which informed the public what it was trying to do to fight the alarming pandemic, to Governor Cuomo, who emphasized the importance of not panicking, stating that the panic could be worse than the virus. And yes, it's true. Burr got a private, but we should say not classified briefing on January 24th. And weeks later, in fact, three weeks later, he did sell off most of his portfolio. But by that time, there was so much coverage of the dangers of the pandemic. Burr sold his stock February 13th. Here's what was on CNBC that day. One district in Hubei province, where there are more than 500 confirmed cases, has started wartime population control measures. That means all buildings are closed. Everyone must stay in their homes. Neighborhood associations will buy food and medicine for the residents. Also aired on CNBC the same day. Security at my apartment building are wearing hazmat suits. Now I have to get my temperature checked, register a government ID, show my building security pass and my house key to the officers. And that's just to get into my own home. Eunice Yoon, CNBC Business News, Beijing. You can see how a person like Burr, who was concerned about the virus, might have come to the conclusion that now is the time to sell. And perhaps it was concerned in part by the CDC briefing, the non-classified briefing, but he was also monitoring all the information and made a decision that a lot of other people made around that time. Loeffler, on the other hand, she sold the day of the briefing, so that's a little more directly in line with trading on information that only a government official could get. But we should note that she's the wealthiest member of the Senate. She's worth more than half a billion dollars. And she had corona concerns. They turned out to be well-founded ones. And the value of her sales were $845,000 worth of stock that was sold and $590,000 worth of stock that was bought. She also had a huge $18.1 million deal, but that was part of the... uh, exchange that her husband is part of just cashing out as a matter of course. She says she doesn't oversee her investments directly at all. And those numbers, though huge for regular people, just a small value of her worth. One of the purchases, DuPont, prompted the group crew, Citizens for Responsibility and Ethics in Washington, to note, quote, the husband of Georgia Senator Kelly Loeffler recently acquired as much as $415,000 in stock in DuPont, a chemical company that manufactures protective equipment in exceedingly high demand because of the coronavirus. Aha! Only they didn't note that since the time of Loeffler's purchase, DuPont stock has declined 25%. It's done worse, actually, than the S&P in general. All of the stock she acquired perhaps to take advantage of the business opportunities brought on by the outbreak, has declined with the exception of Citrix, and Citrix's gains did not make up for the net decline of her purchases. It's true, all the stock that she sold also went down. She and Burr certainly seemed to have avoided some losses. But so did every other investor who was watching news out of Wuhan, who did some research and decided it was time to get out. If we allow senators to own individual stock in their name, with their knowledge guiding the purchase or sale of such stock, how can we prevent them from acting on opinions that are formed in their professional capacity? We want them to learn as much as they can. We want them to be informed. And if that information gives them some suspicion about the general direction of the economy, and and we allow them to own stock, we can't prevent them from trading on information that was in part, but not in total, gleaned 
from a non-classified briefing. There is an act in the Senate that is called the Stock Act. It bars a sitting member of Congress from trading on insider information that they got from being a member of Congress. But if the information is augmented with reams of coverage that every other investor has access to, it seems impossible to say that the elected official traded just on the information. Not only impossible to prove, that's just not how the mind works. I am firmly convinced that Richard Burr was walking around concerned, perhaps in large part due to, due to a CDC briefing, but also greatly informed by the scads of information that were freely available to everyone. And as far as Kelly Loeffler, I mean, she might have just traded on the CDC briefing, but she says, and it's hard to prove otherwise, that she didn't do any trading. It was her broker who traded for her. There are three levels of unethical behavior to Loeffler and Burr's decisions. One, they abuse their position to benefit themselves financially. Again, I find this impossible to prove. It's unlikely that this was the only consideration in their decision. It's unlikely that this was largely what influenced to take stock positions. Two, we could say Loeffler and Burr trading stock at all was an unethical act. And I firmly believe it is. I do not think members of Congress should be able to own individual stock. There should be mandatory blind trusts. But if the institution allows for owning and trading specific stock of specific company that of course you're going to in some way regulate, and they define that as not unethical, then I don't know that we can either. Now here's the third thing. Loeffler and Burr didn't do enough to warn the public of the real threat. This, of course, is their biggest failing. In fact, if Burr sold his stock and said, I'm selling my stock, people, and you should sell yours, he'd be no less, quote unquote, guilty of this crime or the Stock Act violation they're investigating him for. But, but he'd probably be a bit of a hero, wouldn't he? And not charged with acting unethically. Still, Burr didn't go out of his way to downplay the threat in a manner that was inconsistent with pretty much the rest of officialdom. And Loeffler never said Corona was a hoax, as some of her critics are alleging. They were just garden-variety Trump-supporting Republicans who didn't want to contradict the president. Lots and lots of officials are in that category. Few, I think none, alerted the media. Pay attention to this. These are just the two who not only failed to call the press, but remembered to call their brokers. And that's it for today's show. Priscilla Lobby, just associate producer, decided to pump all her money into shares of big yeast when she first began to understand the contours of this crisis. Nobody does the shake like Daniel Schrader, just producer. And nobody does the boogaloo like he do. The gist. And now, debuting in his position of just ombudsman, imagineer, director of outreach, and chancellor of the exchequer. He wasn't otherwise busy. Jared Kushner. Jared said, Jer- oh, he just got shy once more. Oomperu depperu dupperu, and thanks for listening.